I was able to share a, a bit of this in Sunday school, but I, I do think it's, it's helpful to know a little bit about this man that most of you don't know who's coming to preach God's Word to you. My name is uh, Jeff Early, and for the last five years, my family and I have had the privilege of serving our God at Second Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina, and so I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters down south. But before we were there, uh, we were here. Uh, I lived the first 30 years of my life in Richmond, Virginia, and I am so grateful that this church is right here. I'm so grateful because no matter where the Lord calls me, Richmond will always have a part of me. And it does me so good to know that there's a church like this one right in the very heart of the city that I love. And I do pray for you all every Lord's Day on my drive to church. I pray specifically for the ministry of this one. And in just a moment, I'll read to us from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, which is our sermon text. Uh, but because this text is very focused on imperatives, that is commands, things that we are called to do, I think it's helpful to remember the context, the, the indicative, the why we are to do what we're being called to do. And so in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing to this church. He's been writing to them. He's got a special relationship with this church. He planted the church, as it were, in Acts chapter 16. You can read about that at another time. And he stayed in close contact with them. And so when they heard that the Apostle Paul was in prison for the crime of preaching Christ, they sent to him, uh, they sent to him a gift and, and a, a note of encouragement by way of their pastor, Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus, while he was there, shared with Paul how things were going at the church. And so what we have in Philippians is Paul writing back to them his thanksgiving for their gift and some concerns that he has. He's concerned because there's a rivalry that has sprung up in this church, and you read about this later in Philippians 4 between two women, Judea and Syntyche, and this, this rivalry is threatening to split the congregation. And so Paul's primary focus throughout the letter is that the church would remain united. And in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, he points them where every good pastor would point his people. He points them to the Lord Jesus, that one that we just sang of, who is above all others, who at our need his life did gladly spend. And when you and I remember that we are nothing more than sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his wrath and displeasure, when we humble ourselves in that way, just as our Lord Jesus humbled himself by, by taking the form of a servant, then it becomes much easier to bear with the frictions that we may have with one another. And then he points us in verses 9 to 11 to the present exalted reigning glory of our Lord Jesus. And he says, if you're having trouble here, look there. He is highly exalted and remember the day is coming at which every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. That's where he points them. And so everything that I'm about to say from Philippians 2, 12 to 13 is built on that foundation. The finished work of our risen, ascended, and returning Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why we are to do what Paul is calling us to do in this passage. And I'd just like to set the context there. So with these thoughts in mind, let's now give our attention to the reading of the holy, inerrant, and life-giving word of God. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. My friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Feed us then from your word. Strengthen us that we might grow to will and to work for your good pleasure. Work in us by your word everything that is pleasing in your sight. We ask this in the name of the great shepherd of the sheep, to whom belongs glory forever and ever. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Rocky is one of the most prolific film franchises of all time. And it tells the story of a rags-to-riches, lower-card, unnamed boxer, unknown boxer, who suddenly finds himself fighting for the heavyweight championship of the world. While I confess I have not seen all nine films of this saga, the seven and a half that I have all follow the same basic trajectory. Rocky finds himself up against an opponent that he is unprepared for. Why? Because he has lost sight of something essential. And he gets the, the classic motivational speech from Burgess Meredith. You've got to get it together, Rock. You've got to get back to basics. You've got to find the eye of the tiger, as it were. And while I tend to doubt the makers of those films intended such repetition from the start, there is something to be said that that, mes that message resonates so well that, that we need to go back to the basics. There's something to be said for the fact that that connects so well across all cultures and ages, this, this call back to the basics. I suspect that we all know well what it's like to have a setback in life that's not due to a gap in our knowledge, but rather due to a failure to apply that which we already know. We need reminders often more times than we need instruction. How many of us have made a careless math error on the budget that resulted in error for our, or, or, excuse me, resulted in disaster for our finances that month? How many have absentmindedly taken a wrong turn on a familiar road because you weren't paying attention? You knew where the turn was, but you forgot. We need to be reminded. And nowhere is this more evident than in our spiritual lives. We spoke about this in the Sunday school hour. The, the Bible could not be more clear. We, it says over and over again, we are to be a praying people. The Bible says we are to pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 To first of all, pray. To pray in all things. And yet, how true are the words of the hymn writer? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. And what needless pain we bear. Why? All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. It's not that you didn't know it. It's that you forgot. You lost sight. We forget too often, as we just sang, what a friend we have above. And something of this back-to-the-basics approach is needed for the Philippian church in the first century. And it's needed for us here in Richmond, Virginia, in the 21st century. 
If we're going to take Paul's commands in this passage seriously, we need to understand the basics of our faith. The exhortation that's given in our text is one of the most famous in all of Scripture. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is not the first time that Paul has brought this up in the letter. This is just a restatement of something he said over and over again to these Christians. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he says in chapter 2 and verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Work out your salvation. Live a life that's worthy. Have the mind of Christ in yourself. Paul reiterates this teaching so many times, not because it's complicated, but because it's essential. It's basic, and we can never be reminded of it too often. You'll find the, the more you study God's word, it is not the principle that he calls you to that's complicated and hard to figure out. It is the practice of it. And so he encourages them over and over again. And on the heels of this magnificent passage about the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord in Philippians 2, 6-11, Paul's point in this passage is to say, All that Jesus has done for you, everything that he has done for you, he is also doing in you. So live like it. That's his point. He he wants Christians to, to live as if what we say we believe is actually true. Or to put that a different way, the the church corporately, that's all of us, must be working out what God is filling in us individually. And, And so we'll consider that point this morning under two simple headings. First of all, what we are called to work out in verse 12. Secondly, what God is working in in verse 13. What we're called to work out and what God is working in. And Paul gives us this call to work out our salvation in three parts. He gives us a preface, he gives us the command, and then he rounds it out with a motivation. First, we'll look at the preface. Verse 12 begins with the word, therefore, which is off the bat, connecting this command with the preceding passage of Scripture. The fact that God humbled himself by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, becoming like us in every respect, yet without sin. The fact that that he lived the perfect sinless life that you and I are called to live and have failed miserably. Because those things are true, they ought to have a, a, a defining influence on the shape and direction of the life of anyone who calls himself a Christian. Christ's work has been credited to us. His spirit has been poured out upon us. And in that, we have all that is needed for a life of faith and godliness. Christ's finished work is the foundation on which our faith is built. The stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. It is the pillar. And accordingly, it is the foundation on which this command is based. If the seed of God's word has truly taken root in the heart of a person, in the good soil, then it is appropriate, indeed it is necessary, to see that seed producing fruit. In fact, the seed must bring forth fruit, and it should be evident in our private lives, 
It should be evident in our family lives, in our local church. And the last of those is what Paul's primary concern is here. And in addition to reminding them of what Christ has done for them, he reminds them of who they are in the sight of God and in the mind of this apostle. We know that God loves these Philippian Christians, and we know that God loves us because of what he has done in Christ. But Paul wants them to know that he loves them as well. He calls them in verse 12, my beloved. And more than just loving them, he believes in them. He says, as you have already obeyed in my absence, now much more obey. In effect, he's saying, I know that you can do this because you have done it, and I'm asking you to keep doing it. The late Gordon Fee observes of the opening words of verse 12, it takes a while in Paul's sentence for him to get to the imperative, that is the command, because first he will remind them of his affection for them and of their long history of obedience. This should be understood in light of the very personal and warm affection that Paul holds for these friends. He's not loading them up with pleasantries before he drops the hammer. He's not trying to artificially cushion the blow. Paul is not afraid to be confrontational. If you do not believe me, just read the letter to the Galatians. He is not afraid to confront error boldly. No, what he's doing is, is he's pastorally addressing his beloved people in a way that will promote their understanding of what he is about to say. He's, he's, he's helping them hear what he's about to say in the way that it ought to be heard. When I was in elementary school, I was diagnosed with a rather severe learning disability. And the prognosis was, uh, this young man is not able to articulate his thoughts clearly in speech or writing. I will leave you to decide whether or not that's the case. But when my grandmother, who was a public school teacher, heard of this diagnosis, she insisted that I would spend that summer writing her one letter every week. She didn't care what it was on, just write her a letter. And so I did. And my grandmother was a very sweet and kind woman. And brutal. Those letters came back to me dripping in red ink. It may have well just been a sheet of red construction paper. I could wring it out and just watch red drip. Why did she read so many horrendous letters from an 11-year-old boy? Because she loved me. And she believed in me. Why did I receive her blunt correction so well? Because I knew that she loved me and she believed in me. And in the same way, Paul is not sugarcoating what he's about to say. He is not, he's not covering it up. He's putting it in a context that will help these Christians understand. And what an important reminder this is for Christian leaders in the church and fathers in the home. Our children, our people, need to hear often, yes, that God loves them. But they need to hear that we love them as well. That these words of correction and rebuke come from one who loves them. I think often of Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 in relation to my own ministry. He writes, Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves, because you had become 
very dear to us. The people of God need to know that God's elders, his pastors, the fathers in the home, that they love them and they're there for them. And now having considered that preface, we're now ready to dive into the command itself. We're ready to examine what it is that Paul is calling to them. Look at, look at verse 12 again. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Our English Bibles have all flipped the word order here just for ease of reading, and that's, that's completely legitimate. But it may be helpful to know that in the, in the Greek original, the word order is this salvation of yours, work it out. It starts from the premise that you are saved, and therefore there are these expectations upon us. There are these things that we are called to do. It's a, it's a call to sanctification. What is sanctification? I hope some of the young people in this church know. I hope the office of this church know that sanctification is the, the, the work of God's free grace, wherein we are renewed in the whole man. We are positionally made new. And then out of that, we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. We are being progressively conformed to the image of Christ. Sinclair, Sinclair Ferguson helpfully clarifies what this command is and what it is not. He writes, We are not to work for it or to work it up, but work it out. That is to make sure that its influence and implications permeate the whole of our lives. Make sure the implications of Christ's saving death and resurrection permeate. That's find their their, their being in all of your life. And yet as clear of an explanation as I hope that is, it is a narrow path to walk. And many in the church fall into one of two ditches on either side. One is what we'll call legalism, and the other is antinomianism. And you'll find these in, in, in many churches. You'll find them in many professingly reformed churches. And, and so as I explain the, the difference between these, it may sound to you like I am splitting hairs. I assure you I am not trying to do that but the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ must be done with great care. The chefs in Japan have to take a three-year training course in order to be able to prepare and serve a, a dish called puffer fish. Not three years to prepare to be a chef, three years for this one dish, because if it's not done precisely correct, the result is death. Because in addition to being delicious, I wouldn't know, I've never had it, but in addition to being delicious, this, this fish is also poisonous. And if that poison sac is not removed perfectly, the results could be death. And so it is with the preaching of the gospel. If it is not done with great care and rigor, it is at best damaging to your soul. And at worst, damning to it. And so bear with me as I try and be very precise here. The first error we called legalism, if I could put it in a mathematical formulation for you, is faith plus works equals salvation. Faith plus works equals salvation. Almost nobody, even the Roman Catholic Church, will not deny the necessity of faith for salvation. This is the default thinking of many fundamentalist evangelicals, and it's the explicit teaching of some professedly reformed theologians. They'll argue something to the effect of uh, we're, we're brought into right standing with God by grace through faith, but we are kept there by our faithfulness. 
And my friends, you just need to know, if you hear a professing Protestant minister give you that gospel, that is Roman Catholic theology wearing Protestant robes. It is not true. Philippians 2.12 offers an important corrective to this legalistic understanding by stating the affirmation that we've already seen, that the works flow out of the salvation. The salvation that you have, work it out. Works result from salvation. They do not maintain it. The other error is an overcorrection to this that we call antinomianism. It's to remove works from the equation entirely. Faith equals salvation, period. The problem with that is the rest of the Bible. There's no asterisk behind what Paul says here when he says, work out your salvation. He doesn't say, it doesn't really mean what it kind of sounds like it means. No, we are to work it out. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. It, the grace and the faith, are the gift of God. Why? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. The Bible is very clear. Works need to be part of the equation. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Kruger, once told us, we have, fought, we have a ton of recovering Pharisees in the Reformed world. That is, recovering legalists is what he means. We could use a few more recovering antinomians. We could use a few more who understand that, no, there are calls to obedience in the Bible. His point is that we must not neglect the teaching of passages like this one or of Hebrews chapter 12 that says we are to strive for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In his very excellent book, The Whole Christ, Sinclair Ferguson reminds us that despite our natural tendencies, the solution to this antinomian problem is not a little dose of legalism. Likewise, the solution to our legalistic friends is not a little dose of antinomianism. The solution to both is the Lord Jesus Christ. The the correct equation that we find in Philippians 2.12 is faith equals salvation plus works. Faith equals salvation plus work. The, The direct applications that could be made out of this call to work out your salvation with fear and trembling would be hard to number. But for the sake of time... We will, and the context, we will limit them to Christians in the church because that's Paul's primary concern. All of the language in this passage is plural. All of the yous and the yours, they are plural in this passage. And so our primary application of working out our salvation will flow as we relate to one another in the body of Christ. D.A. Carson points out, we are called to an entire life of working out our salvation. This will be characterized by one, self-denying contentment. Two, a conscious effort to please mature Christian leaders. And three, a cheerful sacrifice that ratifies and endorses the work that more mature Christian leaders have poured into our lives. And all of this is nothing more than learning the entailments of following a crucified Messiah. Close quote. What he's saying is that we have the example of all three of these in the Lord Jesus Christ, who denied himself of his glory in Philippians 2, 6, that he might become a servant, who did so not for his own glory, but to please the Father in accord with, with his call. We have these examples of sacrificial love and giving of our Lord Jesus. He, he's calling us 
to treat one another as Christ has treated us. Surely that is not too much to ask. And because Jesus has been patient with us, has he not been patient with you, my friend? He has been very patient with me. We can be patient with one another. Because Jesus loved the rich young ruler enough to call out sin in his life, we can, with love and grace and great care, warn a brother or sister when they are erring, because love forbids that we would pretend the sin is not there. Because Jesus has forgiven us before we even asked, so we too can be forgiving with one another. Because Jesus loved us and gave himself for us, we ought also likewise to cover the sins of our brothers and sisters with love and forgiveness, sacrificing our pride. For love covers a multitude of sins. That's a heavy call. It's not complicated. It's not hard to figure out. It's hard to do. I can't forgive so-and-so. They were so rude. I can't let go of this offense. It was so great. I, I, I understand. But we're called to do it anyway. We need a proper motivation. And that's exactly what Paul gives us in the rest of the verse. Paul tells us that we are to do this with fear and trembling. Fear of the Lord is the motivation to do such a thing. Many attempt to soften the language here of fear and trembling. doesn't sound lovey-dovey. I understand that. I'm sympathetic to the heart behind it. But when the Lord says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and then he uses similar language elsewhere to say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we have no right to change or soften uh, an iota or a dot of the word of God. Rather, we would do well to change our sensibilities so that they would embrace what God has said. Perhaps the, the best illustration of this call to work out one's salvation with fear and trembling comes from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in the book, as many of you probably know, Lewis depicts God allegorically as a, as a lion named Aslan. And, and Lucy, sweet little girl that she is in the story, when, when she hears of this, this lion, she asks the other creature, she says, is he safe? Who said anything about safe? He's a lion. But he is good. He is good. And in the same way, my friends, our God is not safe. He is a consuming fire. But he is good. He is good. And we are called to live our lives with fear and trembling because we're living under his watchful eye. One commentator explains that the use of this phrase in these texts demonstrates that an attitude of fear and trembling is an attitude of humility and submission in God's presence. He goes on. The fear of the Lord is the best way to dispel the attitude of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Believers need to work together with the attitude of humility that they are doing everything in the presence of God. And this is a concept that is so basic, so foundational, it's in our children's catechism. I hope young children raised in a church like this one can answer the question. 
Can you see God? Children, do you know? Can you see God? No. But what? But he always sees me. We're taking this basic truth and applying it across all of life, my friends, that we live quorum Deo, before the face of God. The fear of the Lord impacts much of our relationships. I'll start with me. Those who preach and teach the Word of God are called to do so with great diligence and care. Why? There's a long list of reasons. One of them, fear of the Lord. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. That verse sends a chill down every preacher's spine, my friends. Fear of the Lord is why we labor. Husbands, called to love your wives. Long list of reasons why that's a good thing to do. One of them, fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord who says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way or according to knowledge, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And then he gets to the motivation. So that your prayers may not be hindered. God will not bless you. He will not hear you if you are not caring well for his daughter. Fear of the Lord impacts the way we do relationships in all of life. Now, this does not mean that we are to be walking on eggshells, constantly afraid of every time we sin, because I promise you, you sin more than you know. Because the Lord Jesus has said, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. But it does mean that we are not to presume on the riches of his kindness and his foreparents, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead us into repentance. I suspect that one reason we neglect this category of fear of the Lord in our thinking is because we we worry that it will promote insecurity in our relationship with God. But rightly understood, the fear of the Lord actually breeds assurance. John Calvin, as usual, is helpful here. He says, there is a kind of fear and trembling, one that so far from diminishing the assurance of faith, the more firmly establishes it. How does it do that, John? This happens when believers, considering that the examples of divine wrath executed upon the ungodly as warnings to them, take special care not to provoke God's wrath against them by the same offense, or when inwardly contemplating their own misery, learn to depend wholly upon the Lord without whom they see themselves more unstable and fleeting than any wind. He says a a healthy fear of the Lord promotes assurance and causes us to flee from sin and to pursue holiness. Perhaps the best analogy here is is that of of a young child who fears disobedience in the presence of their parents. I can tell you that um, sometimes my children are known to act up in the children's programs at our church. Not when mom and dad are there. They don't fear the teacher. They fear us. Why? Because they're our children. Fear of the Lord proves that you are a child of God. It reassures, it reaffirms that relationship that we are his adopted children. So that's verse 12, this this call to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. 
and the implications are heavy, to say the least. And surely, if in our own strength we did confide, all our striving would be losing. But I do not have to tell this church that the right man is on your side, that even though the world and the flesh and the devil are real and they want you, we have help. We have hope. We have a God who is working in us to help us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we find this in verse 13. And this verse 13 will tell us both of God's power and of his purpose. Verse 13 reads, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I want to say, yes, we do get encouragement, as we spoke about in the Sunday school hour, of looking back at what the Lord Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection on the cross at Calvary. We, we get encouragement and strength from that. And we also get strength and encouragement from looking forward to the day that he will return and make all things new. I, I take great comfort in that. That's my blessed hope, and that's yours too. But he has not left us in the meantime. Every verb in this verse is in the present tense. Because he is the Lord who says, Lo, I am with thee always, even to the end. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is perhaps the most significant thing and basic thing in the Christian life. Because when we feel, when we feel beset with sin, we, we can look to, as my pastor calls, the all-purpose Christian verse. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12, or chapter 12 and verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Looking to the one who is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Consider these words of the great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who said of Jesus from this verse, Here is help. Help which, if Satan should be at his utmost force, He's coming at you with everything he has. And your corruptions at their utmost power. Here is help. Help that shall yet be more than equal to the day. Grace all sufficient dwells in you, believer. There is a living well within you springing up. Use the bucket then. Keep on drawing. You will never exhaust it. There is a living source within you. Continue to struggle. You cannot, you will not exhaust the life force which God has placed within you. There is a growing mine of gold. Spend it. Inexhaustible divine wealth is yours. Therefore, cease not to work it out. And this is not help that the Lord gives us in some vague, sentimental sense. No, it's much more specific than that. God works in us to shape our will and our desires. He changes us so that we he changes us so that what we want to do progressively lines up with what he would have us to do. And this is so important. The reformed faith is often accused of 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 making us robots in our own minds that are just mindlessly uh, operating under the sovereignty of God. No, it's not that way. He sovereignly, graciously changes your will that now you gladly follow, you gladly obey, you gladly seek to do what is his good pleasure, that good will of his that is good, acceptable, and perfect. 
And then as a direct result of this God working to change our lives and our wills, our actions change. He's at work in us both to will and to work. And that's his purpose, both to will and to work for what? For his good pleasure. That's an interesting phrase. What do you suppose it looks like to live a life that is good and well-pleasing to God? There are lots of examples in the Bible of people who obeyed God. Enoch walked with God. Noah obeyed God in the building of the ark when no one even knew what rain was. Abraham was called a friend of God for following him. Moses knew him face to face, and and who could forget David, the man after God's own heart? And yet none of them is called his good pleasure. But one there is above all others. This one whom God said at his baptism, You are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. This same one who God would say at the Mount of Transfiguration, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. My friends, as I said earlier, this is Christianity 101. God is at work in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. That means he's at work in you to make you more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that you want that. I hope that you want that more than anything in the world. I hope you want it for yourself. I hope you want it for your family, for your children, for your spouses, for your grandparents, for your friends. I want that for all of you. My challenge to you here today is to do that hard work of investigation. Looking in yourself. Do I see his work in me? Do I see myself being conformed to the image of the Son from one degree of glory to the next? Do I I see a a growing in the things that God loves and a growing hatred for the things that God hates? Surely the answer for all of us is not as much as I would like to. So how do you get it? How, How do you get this grace in your life? How do you have the character of Christ fashioned in yourself? Perhaps you have a great desire to do the will of the Lord but you feel a lack of ability. Maybe you're here this morning and those words of Matthew 26 resonate all too well with you. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Or maybe you're here and you know that you're supposed to want these things, but you find yourself distracted. Prone to wander, you feel it. Prone to leave the God that you love. Or perhaps you're here this morning and all of this sounds like crazy talk. None of it resonates with you and you couldn't care less. I don't know who's here. But I do know that whatever your state is this morning, what you need is this. What you need is, in the words of Sinclair Ferguson, a distaste for the old order and a desire for the new eschatological order. That's fancy theological language that just means we need to actually mean it when we pray, thy kingdom come. We need to mean it 
when we pray the Lord's Prayer that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that eschatological order, that glory that we long for, it breaks through into our day and age. Now, in the worship of the living and true God on the Lord's Day. It breaks through in the ordinary or simple means of grace administered by ordained and qualified men in corporate worship. By the way, that's, that's what makes corporate worship so special, so powerful, so very essential in a fallen world such as ours. I requested the scripture reading this morning to be from Isaiah 61 because it speaks of that day. And it says that it comes through, what, the proclamation of the Word of God. And it comes through the praise of His name. It breaks through. And it molds us and nourishes us and strengthens us here and now. If you are in need of increased grace and strength, then my advice to you, my encouragement to you is trust the Lord and draw near to Him. Whether you need God to grow your desire to do His will, or you need him to increase your strength to do his will, the best possible thing that you can do for your sanctification is to be at a place like this. To devote yourself to the local church as she ministers God's word to you, as she ministers God's uh, sacraments to you, as she and her officers pray for you. There's no better discipleship program this side of glory than worship of the living and true God on the Lord's day. But don't just show up. Actually attend to it with preparation and diligence. Prepare and pray over the passage. I tell our young people back in Greenville all the time, you have such a great privilege growing up in a church like this because you don't have to worry about what's pastor going to preach next week. In your case, Lord willing, Dennis will be back and it'll be Hebrews 11. You know what's coming next. You can prepare. Do so. Read ahead. Pray for God to help you understand. And the most underplayed of these means of grace is, of course, prayer. I'm convinced it's absolutely essential to growing, to work, and to will for God's good pleasure. If I could encourage you to do one thing this morning, it's to cultivate a prayer life with an open Bible, praying the very promises of God right back to him because those are prayers that you can have confidence because then you are praying for the very things that he is eager to do. Then there's the sacraments. In baptism, a new convert or a covenant child is marked out as no longer belonging to the world but belonging to God and to the church. And, and, and that person now wears a new jersey, as it were, and has no business living like the world. For a baptized Christian to live like the world would be the same as for the home team to run plays called by the visiting coach. It doesn't work. There's the Lord's Supper. Not after a corporal or carnal manner, but by faith, being made partakers of the body and blood of Christ and growing in our union with Him and our love for one another as members of that same mystical body. Praying, preaching, singing in the sacraments. This is the training program that we need. Because, like Rocky Balboa, we are training for the fight of our life every single day. But unlike him, our enemies are not, are, are not flesh and blood, but they are principalities and powers. And so we need spiritual nourishment and strength. 
We're not called to look on the inside to something that we have lost. We're called to look up to the one who has found us and called us his own. Look up and be conformed to the image of the Son. It is a call to look to that exalted Christ and in full reliance on the Holy Spirit to live as becomes a follower of him in this fallen world. So our training is dependent on that heavenly glory, that eschatological order that breaks through, that he might work in us that which is pleasing in his sight, that we might work it out with fear and trembling. Let us pray. God in heaven, we praise you for your love for us. You've given us a a heavy task in this passage to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But how great is your kindness that you have not left us to do that alone, but that you work in us. Help us then to work out our salvation with confidence, for it is your spirit who is at work in us both to will and to work for your good pleasure. We ask this in the name of him who has gone to prepare a place for us and is coming again soon. We ask it in the blessed name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.